Well, you need to get ready. I hate to say it, but I'm honest. You have to get ready. Pronouns and the debate about them is going to take front and center now in our everyday life for the next couple years. The day President Joe Biden was sworn in, the White House website was updated to allow visitors to specify what pronoun, pronoun they use. You can be Mr., Mrs., Miss, Mix, which is M-X, Z, X-E, Zim, or just my name, please. We are told that for many people, this is quite an exciting new frontier we are entering. A 2018 Pew Research study said 40% of Americans believe official forms and Secretary of State paperwork should include all gender options beyond male and female. 19 states now recognize non-binary gender markers on IDs and driver's licenses. And 13 states are now allowing such designations on birth certificates. One social expert that works for the Movement Advancement Project says this is something all of us should celebrate. Because, quote, respecting pronouns is part of creating a supportive and accepting environment, which impacts well-being and reduces the risk of suicide. There's a church historian, and his title is William E. Simon Fellow for Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. His name is Dr. Carl Truman, says that this drive for pronouns, it's much more than just the prevention of suicide and fostering mental well-being. He believes it's about giving people the right to determine their own identity. He says, quote, there's a deep desire in the modern West for self-expression, to perform in public in a manner consistent with that which one feels or thinks on the inside. We now place a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence, unquote. So because of that, pronouns must be personally felt and owned because people need to be able to express freely the reality that they feel on the inside and let everybody in the outside know. Because one of the highest values for people now is to be authentic. People want to be authentic. We must be who we feel we are, and we want others to also treat us the way we feel. In other words, no more hypocrisy. Whether you agree or disagree with this pronoun debate, the desire to be authentic is something we as a church should be excited about, actually. Instead of acting apart, we should encourage all people to be who they are and to be proud of who they are. And getting people to finally be honest and transparent about who they are with their walk with Christ has always been, for me, one of my primary goals. I want you to be who you are. Stop the games. And be proud of who you are. And with that perspective in mind, I'm going to offer to you today two pronouns to choose from when it comes to following Christ. You get to choose. And the choice you choose 
Live in it. Stop the hypocrisy. Be who you feel you are. And here are the two choices. You can choose from the pronoun me, or you can choose from the pronoun him. And this is what we're going to consider today. It will make more sense as we go through the scriptures. But the two choices you have as a follower is you can either be a me, pronoun adopter, or a him, pronoun adopter. And to figure out where this is coming from, we're going to start reading in verse 18. You can remain seated because I want you to really read this morning. In a way, kind of throw yourself into the story. Join it. Imagine you're there. And then it will start bringing life to you. Starting in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and paralytics. And he healed them, all of them. And great crowds followed him, from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's the ten cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So this is now the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He is in the prime of his life. He's about 30 years old. The title we have is follow. It's going to be a question of pronouns. He's in the prime of his life. You can kind of say it like this. The curtains now are opening. On his ministry, he's taken front and center of the stage. The bright lights of the noonday sun are being cast on him, and he wants the world to see him, to set their gaze upon him, and to ultimately follow him. So our hero walks strong, striding down the beautiful shores of Galilee to call all people to himself. Can you see him in your mind? Imagine him, sun-bronzed and strong. He is the greatest man to ever walk on this earth, bar none. He comes in this passage like a king, ready to conquer. He just outdueled Satan. Satan is the fiercest enemy of mankind in the desert, and he won handedly. We just learned that two weeks ago. And now he's ready to conquer the hearts of people. That's what he's come for. 
Before this event occurs, the other Gospels give us a little bit of insight of what was going on in Jesus' life before he calls Andrew, Peter, and James, and John. In the book of John, it says that Andrew himself just got baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist tells, says, go follow him, because behold, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Andrew began following him. In the book of Luke, it says that he already went to his hometown in Nazareth, opened the scroll of Isaiah, and began to preach and said, today it is being fulfilled among you. And they grabbed him and wanted to throw him over the cliff in his hometown and kill him. He already was healing people in Capernaum. It is the wedding of Canaan where he turned water into wine probably already occurred. So you could say that when he finally calls Simon Peter here, Andrew, James, and John, we can assume they already had some idea of who he was. But Matthew is going to present it that he's calling them and immediately they follow. It is kind of shocking. We're going to talk about that in a second. So when we read the account of his entrance here in Matthew, we are simply told that people were called to follow, and they did. And not only were these four willing to follow, but there's also huge crowds that wanted to follow him as well. They're called great. And so the word follow or followed in these verses that we read, these are eight verses, four times the word is used. So you could say that's the theme. The theme is follow. You could also say this, and I'm going to make the case, that this is still the theme. This is still why we come. Is to follow. The word follow in verse 18 is in, in Greek language, it's in the aortis active imperative sense. This means it's a word that is expecting immediate action at the moment you hear the words. So follow is an invitation. Hey, you want to come follow me? Follow me is a command. Follow me. It's, it's basically this, come hither in the Old English, but means this, come to me. Follow close to me. Learn from me. And then do what I do. But it's still your choice. That Even though it's an imperative sense, that means it's in the command sense, it's still your choice. You still choose. And as you make your choice, I'm going to, I'm going to work through two questions I think everybody asks when they follow someone. Who will I be following? And what kind of a follower do I want to be? And so the first question, who will I be following, is pretty clear. It's one immensely popular man. The crowds just swarmed around them. And his name, of course, is Jesus Christ from the city of Nazareth. That's his very detailed identity. This is who we as a church are following. This is who we want to get our identity from. This is how we want to be known exclusively. We don't necessarily want to be known as people from Kent City Baptist Church. That's where we're located, and that's how we kind of call ourselves. We don't necessarily even want to be known by denomination or what kind of style of music we use. We want to be known by a man. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is, from the story, if you look closely, an amazing person. He's compelling. 
His message is powerful. It's called good news. The gospel, that's what gospel means. So it's a positive message of a new kingdom, and the kingdom means of a new rule and a new king who's come to take over. And if you look at verses 23 and 24 that we read, he healed everyone, everyone that came to listen to him. This was not just a few people. This was everybody. And he's so successful at preaching and healing that people from Judea, the east side of the Jordan River, south of Jerusalem, and all over came to listen to him. Everybody had to come. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I would have done anything to go see him. Anything. To just see his face. I would have brought my whole family to see him. I would have slept outside in tents. I would have sat through a rainstorm. I would have shivered in the bitter cold just to get a close look at this man. I mean, to actually hear the voice of the one who created everything you see by his voice. Could you imagine listening to him? I would have brought my sister Lara, who has been mentally handicapped for the last 60 years. I would have brought her because he would have healed her instantly. There, there's a lot, I will say it like this, there's a lot of interesting people in this world. There's a lot of incredible celebrities, athletes, musicians, singers, politicians. Let's not use that one. But there's a lot of interesting people. But there is nobody, nobody that even comes close to this man. And there is nobody else I want to follow. Nobody. Nobody. And I believe that with everything I have, he's the greatest. So the question then is this. What kind of follower do you want to be? There's two types. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about, the rest of our time. And the question is, what type of follower do you want to be? This is where the pronouns come in. Because you choose. The first group we find in 18 through 22, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they're known as disciples. And disciples are called by Jesus himself to follow me. This is where the pronoun me comes in. We'll talk about that in a second. The second group we find in verses 23 to the end, and they're known as the crowd, and they follow him. And it's a big difference, huge difference. So we're going to take our time to look at both groups to determine which pronoun would best describe what is going on in your heart. I want to springboard off a quote I was reading in a commentary. I think it, it describes what's going on here perfectly, the two groups. But it also describes what is still going on because these two groups still exist. And I want you to listen to them because you are part of one of these two groups. And here's the quote. We shall find only a few who are Jesus' constant and committed companions. While a less 
easily defined crowd comes and goes. It's a powerful statement if you let it sink in. Saying the two groups, one is defined by a few committed followers. Scripture often calls this group the remnant. And then there's the crowd. And they're a big number. But they're kind of hard to define, to typify, and they, they waffle. They're following for a while, then something else catches their attention, so they leave. And They might come back a little bit later, but then they get bored and they leave. The disciple is sort of like the big log, the big Yule log you put in the middle of a giant fire and it just st stays there. But the thing about a Yule log is it gets hotter and hotter. The crowd is sort of like a piece of soggy driftwood that has been drifting out in the ocean or the Lake Michigan for a while, and then a storm comes and it's washed up shore. But then a big wave pulls it back out and it goes out again for a little bit, and then it gets washed up shore, but it's at a different shore. You never know when it's going to be on shore or when it's just going to be floating along with the current. So let's take a little bit deeper look, because either you're a Yule log or a piece of driftwood. So let's start with the crowd. And the crowd is known by, they are the ones that follow him. That's what verse 25 says. And great crowds followed him. I'm going to describe them in three ways. The first one is they are the ones who initially come because it's exciting. They heard the good news. They came to see the show. They came to see him. Messiah has come. A new king. I, I can't wait for a new king. And this new king speaks like nobody else with the grace and the mercy of God because of, like all of us, we're, we're ready to be done with the rule of sinful man. Could you imagine having the new king of kings, the prince of peace, being in charge? Wow. And so like all people, I'm sure they... They want to live with him in a harmonious world of peace and safety. I do. I do. And so, of course, they are interested in hearing him out. We call this plea, the gospel is a general call to all of mankind. It's a plea for everyone to come and listen. Come and join the kingdom. Theologians call this general call an indiscriminate call to all who will listen. It's meant for anyone who has ears to hear. It, it knows no barriers. It leaps over all cultures and racial boundaries. And as Matthew Berry, a Christian writer, says, the general call basically does this. It invites sinners to repent and find truth in Christ, promising anyone who does come to him, they will be forgiven and they will receive life everlasting. The general call, I'd say, is kind of like announcements that we give on Sunday morning or the announcements that are written in the bulletin. You know, we project them. We'll say something like this. Hey, Trevor is looking for teachers to teach kids. If you want to work in a nursery or fifth and sixth graders or young elementary school, the call is out there. It goes out there. And we hear it. But not many people really listen. Oh, that's for someone else. Not really me. I mean, if there's a whiteboard talk, if there's cool slides, I might listen. But, you know, 
That's probably for him on the other side of the room. Because the general call is easy to listen to, but most of the time it's resisted because the human heart is very hard soil. We often say, you know, it sounds good, but I just don't know. I just don't know. I need some time. So you can say, second thing, the crowd is large, and it's usually full of pe people that conform to the rest of the crowd. Kind of like a large school of fish. People in the crowd are quick to join in when they, with the accepted current trends. Most will not push back concerning the popular opinion of the day. During Jesus' time, I mean, why not join a crowd? Who wouldn't want to hear him? I would. And for that matter, who wouldn't want to see the healing? Now that would be something. The crowd is following to get something. And the crowd will usually reflect the majority and adopt the cultural climate around them rather than wanting to really obey and identify with Jesus' difficult demands. Who doesn't want to watch an exciting preacher? Who doesn't want to sing music that makes you cry with thousands of others to the top of your lungs? Who doesn't want to watch a good theater theatrical production with, that just elicits a lot of applause? Who doesn't want to join in with the socially advanced group wearing the same t-shirts or who virtue signal on social media as all the other fashionable people do? Who doesn't want to be current? The crowd joins because they don't like controversy. They like niceness. They like unity. They like peace. They want a fuzzy embrace. And they want wonderful things. So of course, the crowd was excited when Jesus came in his early days with the signs and wonders. But I have a feeling the majority of the crowd are also the ones who yelled crucify him when he carried their cross up Calvary. Third thing about the crowd. They're an undefined crowd that like to stay distant. They don't like to get too close. They um, are still contemplating, deliberating if they should fully commit. They're watching, feeling it out a little bit. I mean, they're wanting to join, but I, I don't know. I don't know. They like to keep their distance, stand farther back on the fringes. So if you're a crowd member, you could ask the question to the crowd member, who exactly are you following? Well, I follow him, the crowd member would say. I follow him. And so when you watch the crowd, you, you try to pinpoint where they really stand. Do you think the crowd is saved? I, I don't know. They say they believe, but I'm not quite sure. Do you think they really know God? <laughs> I don't know. They'll sing songs at church, but when they're with their friends out in public or at the pub, his name is used frequently as a swear word, and it seems that Jesus is not really a person they really cherish. Do you think they really are a follower of Jesus? Well, they claim to be, but they don't seem to be any different than those who deny Jesus. So as R.T. French said in that quote, they're less easily defined. They're kind of like a blob. I don't know where they are. They often have more questions about faith than they have answers. And as they say, often the crowd is just going along for the ride. There's another group called the disciples. And the disciples, according to verse 19, are given a call that says, 
in a very intimate way, follow me. I'm not following a show, I'm following a man. And so you could say this, a disciple is not part of the nameless group, they, they are individuals that are known by Jesus himself. Jesus knew the names, Andrew, Simon, who he's going to call Peter, James, John. I love how Psalm 28, I believe Psalm 28 expresses the inward experience of this calling, of the disciple. Psalm 28, 27 verse 8 in the NLT says this, My heart has heard you say, he's talking to the Lord, My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. That's an incredible verse. And so I think in this case, in Matthew, Jesus comes personally and he asked specifically to these four men to come and follow. Doing some research on the culture that day, when a Jewish man would look for a rabbi, they would decide which rabbi they want to follow. But Jesus is different. The rabbi decides which disciples he wants to follow. And he calls them. And it's called a specific call, as theologians would say. Where the general call falls only upon the ear, the specific call goes in and moves the heart. Jesus hinted that the specific call is one who is born again like the wind. The spirit blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So when Jesus wants a person, he goes after them, and we really don't have any re reason why is he going after them. I don't know, but he wants them. And when they, he goes after them, he knows their name, and you know he knows your name. So if we go back to the illustration of the general call, the general call is like the announcement. The specific call would be like Pastor Jared saying, hey, uh, Bertha, could you sing in my worship team? You want me? It's different than we're looking for worship team members. It's Bertha. Do you want to sing? Because I want you. Different. Second thing about this group is Jesus goes after them because he has a specific purpose for them. In this case, he says to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you, make you fishers of men. So Jesus fishes the fishermen so the fishermen can come and fish other men. You don't just follow, but you do what he does. What is the purpose of the crowd that we talked about earlier? They want to watch. They've come for a show. What is the purpose of the disciple? To do what the master has been doing. So you could say the crowd are by nature consumers, disciplers are doers. I want you to also know something interesting about this story. This is really fascinating. Jesus picked kind of regular people to carry on the work. I mean, really, how could he use four fishermen who probably stink, like the sea, maybe a little B.O. I know we're in church, and I'll talk about that. Probably had calluses on their hands. They probably had shoes that were sandals. Their clothes were salty, old. And he chose these four men 
to start a movement that is going to reach the world that is still reaching you? What? This is not a religious picture. What I mean by that, it's not something meant for the hallowed halls of a stained glass cathedral. This is kind of vulgar. Out, in the, out by the Sea of Galilee, where fish are rotting on the shore, and Jesus, who is God himself, wants to be a companion to these men. Wow. That's crazy. But I'm telling you, what that says to me is maybe, maybe, just maybe, he wants me. As I am. Third thing about this group, this is a very difficult term to wrestle with in this passage. We find it in verse 20 and 22. Look at it real quick. It's a very difficult phrase. Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets. Verse 22. Immediately they left their boats. Immediately? It's the old English word forthwith. We would say that very second on the spot, without hesitation, they left their nets and followed him. Do you buy that? Because here's what that means. That means four grown men were willing to give up everything to follow a person they barely knew. They barely knew him. Why would they do that? One commentator said this word immediately even means sudden and complete. And they knew the life that they were to live was never going to be the same from this time forward. To follow Jesus, they're going to give up their old way of life, their, maybe their career, their livelihood, and even their reputation that took them years to build up. Yet Peter's the best fisherman in this town. Well, why isn't he fishing anymore? He's a, helping a rabbi. What? Who would actually do that? Who would actually commit themselves to someone for the rest of their life without even really knowing the person they're going to follow? First of all, I did. I, I had a business degree. I gave it all up a snap of a finger when I knew, I knew Jesus was calling me. I knew that my plans were now going to be wrapped around his life. I'll say it like this. If you're married... You did too. Here's how I'll put it. If you are if you're married, or you've been married, here's the question. How well, I mean honestly, how well did you know your spouse before you said I do? If you are honest, you probably now realize after being married a few years, or maybe many years, that you had no idea who this person was like I know him now. And you know that for a fact. However, you were willing to give up everything and say I do in a moment because you knew if you didn't commit to them, you would lose someone you could not live without. I can remember the night before I said I do. I'll never forget it. I was lying on my bed and I looked up at the ceiling and I said to myself, this is it. This is my last night alone. By myself. In my own bed. This is the last time I get to decide fully what I'm going to do with the day. And once I say I do, I know I am going to be deeply involved with the life of another until 
the day I die. That's what discipleship is with Jesus. It's exactly the same thing. When he calls me, I know it. My heart knows it. He knows Chris Weeks. He knows my name. And then I also know life is now going to include him every single day for the rest of my life. I'm not watching from the distance anymore, speculating, judging, but rather I'm fully involved. So I must do what I see him doing. I go where he goes. I think the way he wants me to think because my life is changed immediately. I'm going to take a quick sidetrack, real quick, and just look at verse 22, because this is fascinating to me. It's stunning. And we often miss this. Verse 22 says, Immediately they left the boat, and now look at the rest, and their father, and followed him. How would you feel if you were a father who trained your sons to continue on in your trade and they gave it all up in a moment to follow Jesus. Some fathers lose it. They can't handle it. They can't understand why their son or why their daughter would give up money, security, and an understandable lifestyle and to follow an invisible God. You know, if you give this lifestyle up, you're not going to be able to get that RV you want and go around from... You know, June, like we have for as a family, you're going to miss our get-togethers. I remember one time when I was a youth pastor, I brought a kid to Moody, and he was so excited about the Bible, and his dad came over and said, stop talking to my son. He is not, he is not going to leave the business. And I really haven't talked to that guy since, or the son. But Zebedee, you know, the question is, so is Zebedee mad? When you look later in Matthew, actually Zebedee and his wife are more excited for their sons because they know Jesus is the Messiah. He really is the king. And they realize it is more of an honor to have your son or your daughter serve the king of eternity than it is to carry on a business and make some money. And some parents in here need to get the heart of Zebedee. Stop thinking your way of life is the way. Because there is a better way. As one who left to follow Jesus, I must warn you, the call of following me is much harder than the call to follow him from a distance. He will ask you to do what he's been doing. He teaches and spends time with the lowly and the sick. He befriends the fishermen and tax collector, which are regular ruined people. And those who are his disciples will also spend time with those same sorts of people. I read this quote by George Orwell. George Orwell's a writer of Animal Farm, 1984, but really what he was a sociologist, and he liked to kind of study human beings. And here's what he wrote, very fascinating. He said, we think what people want is ease, security, and avoidance of pain. But what history has shown to be psychologically far sounder is living for a higher purpose that calls for struggle and self-sacrifice. The crowd wants ease, the crowd wants security, the crowd wants to avoid pain. That is often why they don't follow too closely to Jesus. But the crowd also lives a very unsatisfied life. One writer has said most people 
live in quiet desperation. But we've been made more for that than that. We've been made to follow closely to Jesus. And it's going to be a life of struggle and often self-sacrifice. But you will never, and I'm telling you, and, I, and I'm being as honest as I can, you will never find more satisfied people than people who follow closely to Jesus. You just won't. So the question is, what about you? What pronoun do you choose? Do you choose me, follow me, or him? Because one little word will make all the difference in the world.